Thanks for tuning back in to the Maritime History Podcast, everyone, and welcome. This time around, we are at episode 30, Trireme 101, How to Build, Sail, and Ram an Ancient Greek Warship. As I laid out last time before I signed off, today I want us to take as much time as we need to focus in on the type of ship that revolutionized maritime warfare in the periods that were pivotal for Greece, continuing then to play a major role in naval history down through the histories of Greece and Rome, even the Phoenicians and the other smaller players on the historical stage. The ship that we'll be focused on is none other than the famous Trireme. Now, I must say at the outset here that I hope this episode doesn't shatter too many misconceptions about ancient Greek warships. I try to look at it through positive glasses, that presenting a more accurate picture of the past is always a good thing. Anyhow, my concern about misconceptions stems from the fact that multiple times I've told people that I'm reading up on ancient maritime warfare, and triremes in particular, and the reply almost every time centers on a reference to the Charlton Heston film adaption of Ben-Hur. You know the one that I'm talking about. And if you don't remember it from your childhood at some point, it focuses on the titular character of Ben-Hur, who spends a portion of his life as a Roman slave, rowing in a Roman galley. This image seems to be what a lot of people associate with all naval warfare in the ancient world, but today we'll see just how much the triremes of Athens and other Greek city-states, not to mention the triremes of Persia and the Phoenicians, all differed from this image of a slave-rowed galley reaching ramming speed. Given that there are stacks of books and scholarly articles that focus on the Greek trireme, not to mention reams and reams of quotes from the ancient sources that we could discuss, this episode will necessarily have to be a summary of the major salient points that will give us a solid grasp of the important issues to keep in mind when looking at trireme warfare and their usage in naval battles and the importance of these ships to the overall strategy of wars as a whole in ancient Greece and Rome. To get the ship underway today, let's start with a consideration of where the earliest triremes began to appear in ancient history, a question that is easily as debated as any that we've addressed thus far on the podcast. Surprise, surprise. The first part of this question involves who it even was that invented the trireme. Generally, scholars divide into two main camps, one pointing to the Greeks as the innovators that spawned the trireme, while the other camp understandably points to the Phoenicians. I'm just going to say flat out here that I cannot really present any argument-ending evidence, and that the points made by each side in this argument are in-depth, and involve a lot of detailed discussion. Essentially, though, there are a few depictions that are connected to the Phoenicians, and these are the depictions on which the argument hangs. One of these depictions is a depiction of ships in the palace of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. 
We talked about this one back in episode 24, where we said that Sennacherib laid siege to Tyre and Sidon. So this depiction shows King Luli of Sidon fleeing the city aboard what appear to be warships. These ships are a bit hard to make out, but the contention is that two levels of rowers are clearly delineated, and that there is possibly a third tier of rowers, which would make this one of the earliest evidences of the trireme, or at least an early precursor of what would later become the trireme. Of course, the depiction is ultimately unclear and still open to debate, so this alone is not definitive proof of Phoenician responsibility for the earliest triremes. That being said, it doesn't rule out the possibility either, and to take this topic of trireme origins down a slightly different path, we ought now consider the date at which the trireme began to emerge on the scene. As I hope we've solidly established in our episodes previous to this one, the warship that was prevalent prior to the advent of the trireme was the oared galley, whether those oars numbered 10, 20, or 50, as they did in the Pentaconter. Regardless of number, the oared galley as it existed in Mycenaean times, in the Phoenician world, and in archaic Greece, all were devoid of a ram and functioned merely as transport vessels for troops or highly valuable and less voluminous cargo than would have been carried in the round-hulled merchant vessels. The oared galley was built for speed, but this didn't necessarily require the structural strength that was required of the trireme, a topic that we will get to today. Essentially, the Pentaconter or similar galley of archaic times was a floating platform to facilitate hand-to-hand -hand combat at sea, at least insofar as it was used in the battle scenario. The speed of these galleys also facilitated raiding activity on other ships or on coastal settlements, which we've also talked about previously, but the ships themselves didn't engage in combat against one another. So in the whole context here, you can see how the emergence of the trireme would change the dynamics considerably. And if this isn't totally evident yet, it certainly will be as we get more into the trireme here. To get back to the issue of dating here for a minute though, the depiction that I described earlier from our look at Assyria and the fleeing king of Sidon, this depiction is generally dated to 701 BCE. So many historians say that the trireme as we know it wasn't completely in existence at the turn of 700 BCE, but that the depiction contains a rudimentary precursor of the trireme as it eventually would emerge into a fuller form. Apart from this depiction, we do really have to rely on textual references out of two main sources, those being Herodotus and Thucydides. Thankfully for us, these two historians were intimately acquainted with the trireme and with naval warfare in the whole. Herodotus was around it constantly because of his frequent travel and his proximity to the second Persian invasion of Greece. 
Thucydides, though, is probably the preeminent primary source regarding Greek naval history, since he was actually a trireme commander during the Peloponnesian War. Later on, as we start to talk about that war and about Thucydides more closely, we will see how he fared as a commander, but in any event there, his command skills don't necessarily have a bearing on his importance as a Greek historian for our purposes. Now, those are the main writers that we will draw from over and over again here in the coming episodes. But as concerns the dates that they present us with, the thing that many scholars broadly agree on comes from a different source altogether. The clearest ancient statement comes from the 2nd century writer Clement of Alexandria. He was drawing on older sources, and in doing so he stated in the middle of a list of inventions from the past that, quote, the Sidonians were the first that constructed a trireme. He seems to interchange the name Sidonian with Carthaginian, as he repeats the claim later, substituting Sidon for Carthage. But at any rate here, this claim, we can at least place it in the broader category of the Phoenicians, whether they were from the mother cities or the colonies, and this claim lines up with the earlier depictions placing trireme-like precursors in Sidon around 700 BCE. The next clearest statement has been subject to misinterpretation and debate both, so I'll try to lay it out as straight as I can. Thucydides wrote the classic account of the Peloponnesian War in which he was involved, and in the introductory portions of that history, he looks at the growth of Greece prior to that conflict and how sea power and naval strength influenced the course of Greek history up to that point. Now, I'm going to read a relatively lengthy passage from Thucydides here, simply because it frames the topics that we will consider today and into the future so well. But listen for the connection that he makes between Triremes and Corinth in this larger passage. He discusses the state of affairs in Greece as a whole after the Bronze Age collapse, leading then into the resurgence of Greek cities that then oversaw vast colonization and political changes. After laying all of that out, he writes the following passage. But as the power of Hellas grew and the acquisition of wealth became more an objective, the revenues of the states increasing, tyrannies were established almost everywhere, the old form of government being hereditary monarchy with definite prerogatives. And Hellas began to fit out fleets and apply herself more closely to the sea. It is said that the Corinthians were the first to approach the modern style of naval architecture, and that Corinth was the first place in Hellas where triremes were built. That is part of the passage. Let me wedge in a brief interlude here to say simply that this claim has been oftentimes misinterpreted to say that he's claiming Corinth invented the trireme and was the first to build it anywhere. A close reading of his words, though, shows that he claims Corinth to be the first place in Greece where the trireme emerged, not the first place anywhere. 
Continuing on with the passage, though, he says, in addition to Corinth building triremes, quote, we have Ammianicles, a Corinthian shipwright, making four ships for the Samians. Planted on an isthmus, Corinth had always been a commercial emporium, as formerly almost all communications between the Hellenes within and without the Peloponnesus was carried on over land, and the Corinthian territory was the highway through which it traveled. She had consequently great money resources, as is shown by the epithet wealthy bestowed by old poets on the place, and this enabled her, when traffic by sea became more common, to procure her navy and put down piracy. And as she could offer a market for both branches of the trade, she acquired for herself all the power which a large revenue affords. Subsequently, the Ionians attained to great naval strength in the reign of Cyrus, the first king of the Persians, who ruled from roughly 550 to 530 BCE, a date note from myself here, but also of his son Cambyses, and while they were at war with the former, commanded for a while the seas around Ionia. Polycrates also, the tyrant of Samos, had a powerful navy in the reign of Cambyses, with which he reduced many of the islands which he consecrated to the Delian Apollo. About this time also, the Phocaeans, while they were founding Marseille, defeated the Carthaginians in a sea fight. That's the conclusion of that passage, and I wanted to read the whole thing so we could get a context around what Thucydides was saying, especially that final sentence there, which goes to the Battle of Alalia, which we talked about last time as having taken place around 540 BCE. That battle seems to have involved only pentaconters with rams affixed to the front, so it seems from the accounts of this battle that the tactic of ramming was in its early stages around 540, which will play into the emergence of the trireme as we will lay out today and later on. If the Phoenicians had rudimentary trireme styles around 700 BCE, and Corinth began to introduce the trireme to Greece between then and the Greco-Persian Wars, that then leaves us with a window of time where we know that the trireme was invented and refined, but a window within which we are sadly lacking many of the details regarding how that development progressed. As we get into the first mentions of trireme fleets here now, I should also add that we saw in an earlier episode that the Egyptian pharaoh Necho was said to have constructed triremes to use on the Red Sea. He reigned around 600 BCE, and although this date is within the window I mentioned, it does seem likely that he received assistance with building those triremes from the Phoenicians, although it is possible, I suppose, that he may have received assistance from the Greeks at Naucratis too. We ultimately can't know more than the fact that Egypt had triremes around 600 BCE, and that both the Phoenicians and Corinth also had them by that date as well. Now, the first concrete appearance of the trireme as we generally think of it comes again in the writings of Herodotus, but this time it's much clearer 
and much more instructive. One writer has claimed that the episode we're about to look at is actually a good picture of how the trireme went from a misfit of a ship in the Greek mind to a weapon of war that would revolutionize their naval warfare and their society as a whole. And I tend to agree with this perspective on the evolution of the trireme. I'll try to highlight these qualities as we go through the story here. The story comes in connection to Samos, the same city-state that the merchant Coleus hailed from. Coleus, who we discussed last time when his voyage to Egypt was blown off course, landing him in Tartessos, and opening the eyes of Samos to the riches and colonization opportunities of the Western Mediterranean. In Book 3 of the Histories, Herodotus starts off with a long description of Cambyses II's campaigns into Egypt and Ethiopia. Cambyses was the son of the Persian king Cyrus the Great, so following in his father's push to expand the Achaemenid Empire, Cambyses began a push to take control of Egypt. It's in this context that the first full-fledged trireme fleet appears on the pages of history. A man named Polycrates had become the tyrant of Samos, and after some backstory about how he possessed a fleet of 100 pentaconters and 1,000 archers, the archers apparently bearing mention because the pentaconter at this time was still largely a floating battle platform, and also a troop transport vessel. But anyways, Herodotus then tells us that Polycrates had used this Pentaconter fleet to terrorize his neighbors and take control of many islands in the eastern and northern Aegean, laboring under the mindset that, quote, he would get more thanks if he gave a friend back what he had taken than if he never took it at all. Polycrates was really taking advantage of the situation that the extension of Persian power into Ionia presented him with, but we'll get into that more in the coming episodes. Polycrates took control of Samos in around 538 BCE, so right around the same time that the Phocaeans were causing trouble and engaged in naval battle out in the Sardinian Sea. Somewhere between the start of his tyranny and the time that Cambyses invaded Egypt, Polycrates managed to rustle up the money to construct a fleet of 40 triremes. This is, then, the first trireme fleet in Greek history. Herodotus goes through a story of how Polycrates was allied with Amasis, the pharaoh of Egypt, who played a big part in establishing Naucratis, as a Greek center in the Nile Delta. Herodotus then decides to include this whole story about how Amasis saw the good luck of Polycrates in rising to great power. Seeing this luck, the pharaoh advised his Greek ally to cast his most precious possession into the sea. Since the pharaoh was a bit hesitant to remain allied to a man who had enjoyed such a run of good luck, Good luck does always come to an end, the pharaoh thought, and he didn't want to be obligated to anyone whose luck was about to run out or could do so at the most inopportune time. 
Polycrates obliged, he tossed his seal ring into the sea, and he went home a bit depressed. A week later, though, a fisherman arrived at Polycrates' house, wishing to present him a great and fine fish as a gift to the tyrant. They cut up the fish to prepare it for eating, and what should they find in its belly but the seal ring that had been jettisoned by the tyrant? This is a tall tale to be sure here from Herodotus, but in his history it serves to justify why Amasis and Polycrates broke their alliance. In reality, it seems more likely that Polycrates just decided to switch his alliance from being aligned with Amasis, the Egyptian pharaoh, to then being aligned with the more powerful, seemingly ascendant player, Cambyses. And it seems also that Herodotus and his sources are using the fish ring story as a way to exonerate their ancestors for medizing, which was their term for switching an allegiance to align with Persia. Whether Herodotus is trying to justify the actions of Polycrates or not, we ultimately can't know, although some historians have claimed that medizing in the case of Polycrates and his tyranny in Samos may actually have been the more popular and expedient choice, given their proximity to the Persian Empire and all of the dynamics at play. In any event here, Polycrates sent his fleet of 40 triremes to Egypt in support of the Persian king's invasion, probably in the hopes that Samos would win favor in the eyes of the great power to their east. He conveniently manned these triremes with, quote, those of his citizens whom he suspected as the most likely to revolt against him, and he included instructions to Cambyses that the triremes should not be permitted to return. Leaving aside the fate of this first trireme fleet, since even Herodotus himself digresses into mere hearsay, Let's consider what the facts about the fleet can help us deduce about the state of trireme development in Greece during the time of Polycrates, from roughly 540 to 520 BCE. The main question raised by this story is the one that revolves around how Polycrates had the financial wherewithal to build a fleet of 40 triremes in the first place. Even if this fleet of 40 triremes wasn't the actual first trireme fleet, but is instead just the first that we know about from the pages of history, that still doesn't change the fact that in the following century, even the relatively wealthy city-state of Corinth still struggled to maintain a fleet of triremes, 40 in number. Then on top of that, why on earth would Polycrates have manned a priceless trireme fleet with expendable political foes and told Cambyses to make sure that the fleet didn't return to Samos? Strange behavior to be sure. Triremes were extremely expensive to build and maintain, as we'll outline more clearly here soon today, so it seems that based on the pure cost and on Polycrates' strange detachment from the fleet's value that the Samian fleet of Polycrates, the first we can clearly point to, was probably financed by an Egypt that had been the beneficiary 
of Phoenician trireme knowledge about 50 years before Greece began to build them consistently. Herodotus documents a pattern of Samian animosity towards Persia and friendliness with Egypt, which culminated in an anti-Persian alliance, but then came the shift of alliance from Polycrates, which resulted, we can pretty safely surmise, with the Egyptian-financed trireme fleet being given over to Cambyses and used against the very pharaoh who had funded the construction of the fleet. Now, I'm a little tempted to devote an entire episode to Polycrates and his designs on Thalassocracy before we get to the Persian Wars proper. There are some interesting asides in there about a brief period where Sparta actually had a decent-sized naval fleet, which just seems a little bit strange to think about. Spartans on ships. But these details are certainly getting into the weeds a bit, so... If any of you have opinions either way as to whether we should spend the time in the weeds or just keep moving into the fairway a bit further so we can get moving a bit more quickly, let me know after this episode is over for you. Give me a shout out on Facebook or Twitter or an email, whichever method you prefer there. For the remainder of today, though, we are focused on the trireme. So now that we've seen the first Greek trireme fleet emerge around 525 BCE, and since we also know that the triremes became quite prevalent during the Persian Wars and following, let's now talk purely about the trireme itself, the ship in her construction and usage. I really have to confess as we make the transition here that the approach we'll be taking over this next section was inspired by a passage near the beginning of the book Lords of the Sea by John R. Hale. He describes the construction of the Athenian navy from the perspective of someone there watching the shipbuilders, but he also works in the details of the construction and the function of the triremes. I'm going to attempt a roughly similar approach. We've done this in some previous episodes too, but I didn't want to get too far along without mentioning that marvelous book and its prompting in our episode structure today. There is no doubt that Hale's passage makes for much better reading or listening than mine does anyhow, so I highly encourage you to read that book if you haven't yet. It's also available in audiobook format. I've got mine for free through my local library. And it's really among the best of books out there on the importance of sea power to the ancient Greeks. It's beautifully written, too. Where we will diverge from Hale's framing of the scene is that we aren't necessarily focused only on the triremes built in Athens, at the behest of Themistocles in the lead-up to the Greco-Persian Wars, even though we do know more about those ships than about many of the others. So then, imagine with me, if you will, the shorelines of a Greek city-state of your choice, selecting from among those with citizens wealthy enough to have financed the construction of a trireme or two around 500 BCE. Cities like Samos, Corinth, Aegina, or even Athens, if you want. We can also go with an early morning by the shore of that city, 
I like to imagine that when embarking on a large undertaking like the construction of a trireme, that even the ancients liked to get an early morning start. Gathered by the shore would be a shipwright, someone whose profession and expertise lay in his ability to plan out and oversee the construction of large ships. He would be gathered there with the wealthy citizen under whose charge the ship was to be built, along with, presumably, a crew of workmen. In many instances, a citizen of wealth hired a shipwright and crew to build the ship because the city-states themselves did not oversee the building of each ship individually through a central office or bureaucracy of some type. When Themistocles convinced Athens to build her great trireme fleet, the silver from their mines was distributed to wealthy citizens who each oversaw the process of building one or several ships. Thus, in the time prior to the Greco-Persian Wars, a similar process would likely have been used, perhaps, during the construction of the Samian triremes financed by the Egyptian pharaoh, for instance. There were, however, sporadic cases where wealthy citizens did finance a trireme out of their own pockets, but the process of hiring a shipwright and crew to do the actual work would have been the same regardless of who was funding the work. Where were we then here? A citizen overseer, the shipwright, and a crew of workmen gathered by the shore as the sun begins to rise. That's right. Now, no matter who the shipwright was, no matter which city or which citizen overseer either, the first place to start on a ship or boat in ancient Greece would be with the timber, the wood. Although it goes without saying, I will say it anyways. The wood used in building the trireme was by far the main material. We've seen already how triremes were built and used in various regions around the turn of 500 BCE. So the wood used in their construction will also vary by region. Our knowledge of the various types of wood used in Greek triremes comes from a writer of the 4th century BCE named Theophrastus. He's many times called the father of botany because of his writings that are focused on plants. Drawing from his writings, let us go ahead and return to our seaside gathering and see the workmen begin to chop down trees from the hillsides of Greece and drag the resulting logs to the worksite. At the shore, a central beam of oak heartwood would undoubtedly be the shipwright's first choice for the keel of the trireme. The strength of oak was of prime importance to the keel, which was the backbone of the ship that would bear the brunt of the wear and tear each time the trireme was hauled onto the shore from out of the water. Triremes were built to be hauled onto shore each night, if possible. They were not long-distance ships, but were rather intended as offensive weapons to be used in battle and for day-long trips, where the rowers could then rest ashore at night. The other reason they needed to be hauled ashore each night was so that the wood of the hull could dry out, at least partially, and so that maintenance work could keep the effects of shipworm at bay as much as possible. 
Shipworm was an organism that would quickly burrow into a plank of wood submerged for too long. And the longer that this plank stayed in the water, the more the shipworm could grow and expand its hole into the ship's planking. The danger that this could present is readily apparent, and it's something that the shipwright would have borne in mind as his workmen began to work the fir tree logs that they'd also dragged to the shore. Fir wood was normally the first choice for the wood that would make up the planks of the ship's hull. It is lighter than oak, but it's still sturdy. Pine was an alternative here as well, but the Phoenician shipbuilders often used cedar for the planks in their triremes, since it was more readily available in the Levant. The workmen by the shore would use adzes and saws to fashion the fir timber into planks suitable for the outer hull of the trireme. A multiplied scene evocative of the one that we've already discussed from the Odyssey, where Odysseus built a smaller boat by the sea. The workmen in today's scene would always ensure that the fir wood for the outer planks was not too dry, that it was still green from the tree, since green wood absorbs and retains water more readily than seasoned wood. Green wood is more flexible, making it easier to attain the needed curve for the ship's hull shape. But the ability of this wood to absorb moisture remains important when the finished ship is finally launched into the sea, since any small gaps between the planks become watertight as the planks soak up water and expand a bit to form tight seams. That is, of course, the finished product, though. As the workmen would begin to pile up fir planks, the next step would be to build the shell of the ship's hull. The Greeks took a substantially similar approach to the one that we outlined with Egyptian ships quite a while ago now. It's called the shell-first technique. It consisted of building the outer hull of the ship first, External scaffolding would be used to keep it all sturdy before the internal supports were added later, and it was all then attached and tightened. As the planks began to be built up for the outer shell, the workmen would drill holes in the narrow edges of each plank so they could insert pegs and hammer each succeeding plank down onto the pegs protruding from the plank below. Essentially, this system operated from the same idea as the mortise and tenon edge-joining system that Egyptian ships used over a millennium before Greece began building triremes. The Greeks also drilled smaller holes along the inside edges of the join planks so that they could thread linen cord through the edges where each plank joined its neighbor. Just another way to tighten the plank joints and add stability to the hull. Linen cord in particular uh, also retains its strength when it gets wet, which was an essential quality, making linen cord very important to the construction of a trireme. It's a bit amazing to think of, but with merely the keel and the pegged and threaded planks in place, the hull of the trireme would already be relatively strong. 
internal ribbing and support would, of course, be added to further increase that strength. And Theophrastus tells us that the wood used for the internal structure didn't necessarily need to be light or green. It needed merely to be cheap and tough, since it didn't remain in constant contact with the sea like the outer planks would have. These internal structures were then built with ash or elm wood, generally. As we get more into the design elements that set the trireme apart from previous styles of vessel, we'll need to get a bit more specific as to size and function. So I fear that our imagined shoreside building committee may not carry the day through to the end of the episode here. We'll see if we can take a peek or two back their way as we go, though. Now, the shell-first construction technique wasn't really revolutionary, but the trireme based its claim to fame on other unique traits that we will now get into. To take a step back here for the most important points first, the trireme was an adaption and evolution of the Ord Galley of centuries past. The Pentaconter in particular was the main Ord Galley in use up until the emergence of the trireme, so in comparing these two we can get an idea of what an engineering feat the trireme really represented. The Pentaconter we've already seen. It was a ship of 25 rowers per side, aligned in a single row, although later versions did manage to add a second row to then double the number of rowers, which would have given it 100 or 50 to a side. The physical space requirements for this would mean that the Pentaconter generally was a long and slender ship with a low draft giving it the ability to reach high speeds when under ore power. The trireme was the product of attempts to pack more rowers into the ship. Simply put, more manpower pulling on the oars equals more propulsion power for the ship as a whole. The problem is that wooden ships are subject to the limits of physics when it comes to the downward forces on the extreme ends of the ship not to mention the pressures exerted by the sea in twisting the hull as well. All of these factors at play simultaneously meant that the Pentaconter couldn't feasibly grow longer to accommodate more rowing benches along the length of the ship. The only alternative, as in the modern city, is to go up rather than out, to add that all-important third row which gave rise to the name trireme. We know from numerous ancient accounts that a typical Greek trireme made use of the strength of 170 rowers, a massive increase in pure power compared to the earlier oared galleys. The name trireme, as well as the depictions we have, make pretty clear that the rowers were situated in three, I will refer to them as three tiers, along each side of the ship. Reconstruction work has borne out the reality that these three tiers were not directly atop one another, but that they were staggered slightly. The 54 Thalamians occupied the lowest seats in the ship's hull. The name Thalamian derives from the term thalamos, which connects to the hold of the ship, 
So these rowers were situated just above the waterline and a bit further away from the outer hull than were the rowers who sat in the next tier up. Those rowers made up what is basically the middle tier. They were called the Zygians. The top tier of rowers were known as the Thranites. There were 62 Thranites in a typical configuration, it seems. The Thranites were above and outboard of the Zygians, so much so that the Greek workmen building our trireme by the shore would have added an outrigger-style structure onto the finished outer hull. It was known as the Paraxiresia, which means something like beyond and outside the rowing. Now, I will certainly post a bunch of pictures on the website to help you get a better visual sense of how these various parts fit together, where the rowers all sat, which tier was which, and how far inboard or outboard they were, all those good things. The outrigger, though, served a few purposes, and to help explain the most important one, I should perhaps back up and explain what a thole pin is. On any ship rowed by oars, the oar itself, with the wide paddle end, acts as a lever through which the rower exerts force on the water to push the ship forward. Every rower was assigned a seat on a trireme, and given the tight space constraints with so many rowers packed in there, they couldn't well be sliding around trying to maintain a steady seat while they pulled on their oar. The thole pins, then, were a wooden peg connected to the ship that act as a steady support, a fulcrum around which the rowers could pull their oar in a steady, regular fashion. Literary passages tell us that every rower had his own oar, and each oar was equipped with an oar loop, a leather strap sewn into a loop, so that the rower could attach the oar to the thole pin and keep the oar anchored tightly to that fulcrum, thereby helping him get the maximum power possible out of each stroke. The thole pin for the Thalamian and Zygian tiers, the bottom two tiers, their thole pins were connected to the actual hull of the ship, and their oars projected out through the hull out of holes called the oar ports. Not air ports, like my software tried to change the word to. Thank you, spell check. The bottom row of oar ports was larger in circumference than the center row, and this was just because of the angles involved and the fact that the Thalamian rowers needed to be able to move their oars a bit more in order to get the levers that they needed to make their oar strokes worthwhile. Getting back to the outrigger at the top of the hull now, the outrigger was important because the Thranites, the top tier of rowers, they were closest to the hull. They sat outboard the most. The outrigger extended out from the hull, essentially making it possible for the Thranite rowers to form the third tier of rowers. The outrigger contained the necessary thole pin for this row as well. It extended out beyond what the standard hull would have allowed, which again made it possible for the topmost rowers to get the necessary leverage from their position. 
So the outrigger made this top row possible. That was certainly the key. But it also served as a protective cover for the rowers as well. During a routine day of rowing, the frame could be covered with canvas to shield the rowers beneath from the beating sun. While during a battle scenario, the outrigger could be equipped with thicker screens to shield the rowers from arrows and projectiles launched by enemies aboard opposing ships. Finally, the outrigger was sturdy enough that a wooden platform of planking could be affixed on top of the outriggers, forming a deck-like platform for extra warriors or horses, should the trireme need to be used as a troop transport or supply ship for a short period of time. Let's get back to our shoreside scene just for a moment, where the workmen continue to build up the trireme with the completion of the hull, the insertion of the thwarts for the rowers to sit on, and now with the addition of the outrigger, our trireme is really beginning to look formidable. Formidable as it may look, were the ship to have been launched in this condition, it wouldn't have gotten very far or lasted very long. First off, the outside of the hull would have to have been coated in the black pitch that the Greeks had been using as a sealant ever since the days of the Iliad, when their black ships reached Trojan shores. Still, though, even after the pitch had been applied, something of key importance would still be lacking. Were we to pay a visit to the build site when the workmen were at this stage, we might catch a glimpse of a group of workers carrying extremely long lengths of rope down to the ship. The very thing that was of key importance to the trireme, surprisingly. This rope was called the hypozomata, and we can deduce from later inscriptions that each commissioned trireme carried four ropes, two that were fitted to the ship and two that were spares. Each rope was twice as long as the trireme itself, and given their function, we can presume that they weren't thin ropes either. Some authors claim that they would have weighed around 250 pounds. Even though we haven't talked dimensions yet, Twice the length of the trireme would make each hypozomata roughly 280 to 340 feet long, or between 85 and 105 meters. Quite long, then, and the key function they served would never be visible from the outside of the ship. Essentially, these hypozomata served the same function as a hogging truss on the Egyptian ships that we examined so long ago. Because the trireme hulls were built shell first and were so long, the downward forces on the ship's extreme ends, when the center of the ship crested a wave, could snap the hull in half, if left without a counterforce. The hypozomata, when fitted to sturdy points at each end of the hull, was then twisted to a high tension to act as a cable that would hold the hull planks and fitting tightly together in rough sea conditions. We can see a description of this from the Argonautica, where Apollonius of Rhodes wrote the following lines about the Argo as the Argonauts prepared to launch her toward Colchis. We can take Apollonius's word pretty safely, too, 
Since he was a Rhodian, and likely saw many triremes being built and fitted out for sailing. So here's what he wrote. Quote, The first thing the Argonauts did was to fit the girdle to the ship with might and main, using a well-twisted rope within to put a tension on each extremity, so that with the dowels the planks should fit well together and withstand the opposing force of the sea's surge. We've yet to discuss the focal point of the trireme, but I'm sure you can guess which major piece is still missing from the picture. From all accounts in ancient Greece, though, the hypozomata was a hidden yet integral part of the trireme. The tension provided to the entirety of the hull also helped the hull retain its strength and stability when the mighty ship was used to ram other ships. So there's my tip of the hand about that missing piece. Anyway, the hypozomata was so important in the Greek perception of the trireme that it was listed first in naval inventories that have been discovered at the Athenian port of Piraeus. Finally, before we move on, I feel that I should distinguish the hypozomata from the Egyptian hogging truss. Since I did compare them, and since they did have the same substantial function. The Egyptian truss was generally above the ship's deck. It was raised on stanchions of some sort, so it was visible. It probably stood out in some cases. The Greek hypozomata was fitted lower down in the ship, though. Most scholars believe that it sat at around the waterline, down inside the ship's hull. As it was strung along the center of the ship, along the keel line, the rowers on each side probably wouldn't have been bothered by it too much. As we'll see later on, too, the other crewmen on board were probably not put out either. So these are the really important structural elements of the greater ship. The steering oars were of course important, but these are a common element in most ancient ships, so I'll leave those with just the mention here. Triremes were often fitted with sails as well, but seeing all we've already seen about the primary importance of the 170 rowers, sails were probably secondary. There are even literary references to a practice that developed later on in Greek history of triremes leaving the masts and sails on shore before they shoved off to enter a battle. Since the sails would never have been used in battle, they probably would also just have added weight to the ship and generally been in the way. Now beyond these few minor points, we come to the final major component of the trireme. This one is arguably the component around which the rest of the ship was designed since the ram was functionally the main purpose of the trireme in battle. Before the workmen even began to mess with the mold or bronze work necessary to create the ram itself, the shape and construction of the hull had already focused the bow as a point where the huge blows could be landed without harming the ship. At the point of the bow where the port and starboard whales the reinforced strakes near the bottom of the hull, right above the keel itself, 
So at the point where these whales converged to the ship's stem, where the keel also ended too, at this point a ramming timber was inserted to connect all three of the ship's strongest parts. Now, when a stem piece was attached and the trireme was pointed like a missile at the side of an opposing ship, the forces absorbed by the ram would then be distributed through the ramming timber into the keel and the lower whales that ran along each side of the ship, a transfer of force that allowed the trireme to absorb the heavy blow unfazed if the helmsman had directed the ship to ram at the proper angle of attack, that is. So far here, we've just laid out the way in which the craftsman would use wood to fashion a wooden beak at the front of the ship. The crowning glory, if you will, the item that completed the deadly potential weapon that was the trireme, was none other than the bronze ram. In all of my reading... The most descriptive, complete, and useful information about this stage of matters came from Hale's book, Lords of the Sea. So let's return in our minds to the beach once more as I take a few passages from John R. Hale. He wrote the following, quote, Bronze, an alloy of nine parts copper to one part tin, does not rust and is more suitable than iron for use at sea. Some of the bronze poured into the rams of the Athenian triremes was recycled, melted down from swords that had been wielded in forgotten battles, from keys to vanished storerooms, images of lost gods, and ornaments of beautiful women long dead. Master craftsmen made the rams with the same lost wax method that they used to cast hollow bronze statues of gods and heroes for the temples and sanctuaries. The form of the ram was first modeled in sheets of beeswax directly onto the wooden beak, so that each would be custom-made for its ship. As the artists worked the wax onto the beak, it warmed up and softened, becoming easier to handle. At the ram's forward end, the wax was built up into a thick, projecting flange, triple-pronged like Poseidon's trident. When every detail of the ram had been modeled, the wax sheath was gently detached from the wood and carried over to a pit dug in the sand of the beach. The next step called for clay, the same iron-rich clay that went into Athens' red and black pottery. With the wax model turned nose downward in the pit, clay was packed around its exterior and into its conical hollow to create a mold. Thin iron rods forged by blacksmiths were pushed through the wax and the two masses of clay. When the wax was entirely encased in the clay except for its upper edge, the massive mold was inverted and suspended over a fire until all the wax was melted out. A hollow negative space in the exact shape of the ram had now been formed inside the packed clay. It remained only to fill the mold with molten bronze. But this was a complex and difficult undertaking. Wood fires could not produce the necessary heat. The process required charcoal. A trireme's ram had to be cast in a single rapid operation. 
First, the bronze workers erected a circle of small upright clay furnaces around the rim of the pit. A channel led from the foot of each furnace to the edge of the mold. Broken bronze, whether from ingots or scrap, was divided among the furnaces. With the lighting of the charcoal, the metal in each furnace quickly became a glowing, molten mass. At a signal, the bronze workers and their apprentices removed the clay stoppers from all the furnaces. Simultaneously, the bright hot streams poured down the channels and filled the hollow in the clay mold left by the melting of the wax. The casting happened with a rush, and the bronze cooled and hardened quickly. When the clay mold was broken, never to be used again, the bronze ram itself, smooth, dark, and deadly, saw the light for the first time. After cutting away the iron rods, finishing off the back edge and polishing the surface, the bronze workers slid the new ram into place over the trireme's wooden beak, fastening it securely with bronze nails. With that fastening of the bronze ram to the ship's beak, the trireme would be substantially complete. There were, of course, finishing touches added to most triremes, items that I'll list off here briefly without delving too deep. For instance, the bottommost tier of oar ports in the ship were outfitted with leather sleeves through which the oars were inserted when the oarsmen were busy at work. It seems that because the Thalamian rowers sat so close to the waterline when at sea, that these leather sleeves, called ascomata, were used to keep water from coming into the ship's hold through the Thalamian ore ports. The major remaining touches took the form of the artistic, helping give the Greek triremes the recognizable markings for which they are still recognized and remembered today. Some historians claim that Greek triremes attached gilded figureheads to the prows of their triremes, and while this is definitely a possibility, other historians say that the Greeks generally left the prow unadorned, while the Phoenicians instead added figurehead likenesses of their gods to the prows of their triremes. Whether the Greek ships included figureheads or not, there is no doubt that they tended to include eyes, one eye on each side of the prow, giving the ship what could almost seem to be a face if you were unlucky enough to be the target of a Greek trireme at sea. The ophthalmoi, they were called, were oftentimes carved from white marble and were painted with red irises before they were affixed near the front of the ship. Now, we've said that in many cases, wealthy citizens were responsible for the construction of a trireme or two, so in some cases the state financed a large portion of the cost, but the citizens did still have an interest in ensuring that the ship constructed under their care was impressive, since it reflected on the people who had overseen the building project. There were undoubtedly some other more minor elements to each and every trireme built by the Greeks, flourishes of local decoration to distinguish one city's ship from another, things like that. But for our purposes today, we have pretty solidly laid out the major elements that made a trireme tick. 
We are far from finished today, though, and I hope that's not a disappointment to you. Since, as you might have noticed, only the rowers in their rowing seats have played a part in our discussion to this point. The oarsmen were obviously integral to the motive power of the trireme, but on their own they couldn't have accomplished all that much. After all, as the rowers sat in the hold or in the outrigger, they all faced toward the rear of the ship as they pulled. Not that they could have even seen anyways. Even the three night oarsmen in the top tier were unable to see because the outrigger was shielded in battle although they probably had a decent view when they were rowing on a simple voyage where the outrigger was more open. Nevertheless, all of the triremes needed a navigator among other positions of command, so let's now go ahead and consider the balance of sailors that would have occupied the trireme in a common scenario. A surprisingly concise cheat sheet for the men aboard a trireme can be found in an inscription that's called both the Decree of Themistocles for the man who gave the decree, or simply the Trozen Decree for the city where the Athenian men plan to leave their families while they set off to fight the invading Persians. This inscription wasn't discovered until the 20th century, and it didn't come into academic study until the 1960s. Prior to that, the marble slab inscription was in the possession of a Greek farmer, who apparently used it as a doorstep, the very extreme form of repurposing old material for new uses. To my view, the Greeks really put the American trend of repurposing things to shame. We use hundred-year-old barn wood at the most. Forget about two-millennium-old marble inscriptions. Anyways, the inscription is now generally thought to be a literary version of the decree given by Themistocles. It's probably not a word-for-word literal translation or transcription. We will most definitely get into the story of Themistocles and the Athenian navy in upcoming episodes. For today's purposes, though, let me read a portion of the decree that is related to the manning of the 200 triremes that Athens built in preparation for the Persian invasion. It is generally thought that the passages from Herodotus and other historians of this time can be compared to give a typical total of 200 men aboard each trireme as well. So in addition to the 170 rowers, there were 30 more men. Here's a passage from the decree to fill in how the Athenian navy was divided beyond just the rowers. Quote, The generals are to appoint, as from the following day, 200 suitably qualified triarchs, or captains, one for each ship, and to assign the ships to them by lot. The qualifications are the possession of land and a house in Attica and children born in wedlock, age not over 50. The generals are to call up the epibatai, ten for each ship, aged between 20 and 30, and four archers. The generals are to assign by lot also the hyperisei, or officers, 
to the ships at such time as they allocate the triarchs by lot. The generals are to write up on the notice boards also the oarsmen by ship. The Athenians from the deem registers and the foreigners from the lists of the polemarch. They are to write them up, distributing the men in companies to the number of 200 companies in division of a 100 in number, and to write at the head of each company the name of the trireme and of the triarch and of the hyperesii, so that they may know onto which trireme each company is to embark. Now to unpack this passage, let's just go ahead and follow the progression that it lays out starting with the triarch. As we unpack this, I should clarify that here we'll simply lay out the general duties and functions of the sailors. I doubt that we will get into very specific examples until future episodes. The triarch is equal to what modern navies call the ship captain, one man in charge of each ship in the fleet. As this inscription indicates, the triarchs were land-owning men of Athens, generally, then, men of some wealth and status. And although the city was technically supposed to outfit the ship and provide pay and gear for the men aboard each ship, there are instances where the money was unavailable or not forthcoming, and the triarchs were known to finance the continuing expenses of the ship, especially during a time of war. This idea does also line up with the one that we saw earlier, where the citizen responsible for building the ship would chip in his own money in order to ensure that it stood out from the crowd. Similarly, the triarch's reputation could be enhanced through his personal financing of the ship's operation, or it could suffer were he unable to keep the figurative and literal ship afloat. Not to even mention here the fact that men aboard a ship want to get paid and they do need to eat. So withhold those things for too long and you have a serious problem on your hands if you are the captain. That's probably enough said about the general duties of the triarch for now, I think. Details will certainly be filled in in the future as we get into specifics. The next men mentioned in the decree are called the Epibatai, and the Archers. The Epibatai were placed ten to a ship and were basically deck soldiers on board each ship to fight an opposing crew should the trireme be boarded, or in the alternative should they need to board an enemy ship if, say, the ram got stuck after a ramming attack or something of the like. These soldiers were in positions of high authority on board the trireme. Some passages even indicate that they may have served as disciplinarians over the large contingent of rowers in the situations where that would become necessary. The archers were placed four to a ship, and while they probably functioned as distance offense in battle scenarios, the small number of them also indicates that they may have acted mainly as bodyguards for the protection of the triarch and the helmsman. Speaking of the helmsman, he was a key member of the remaining 15 crew, a group that is collectively referred to as the Hyperesii in the decree. 
As a whole, these remaining crewmen were assistants to the Triarch in specific roles integral to the functioning of the ship at sea. Let's go ahead now and list these roles as far as we know them. The helmsmen we have already mentioned, but in addition we have roles such as the bosun, we could call him the rowing master too, then the purser, the bow officer, the shipwright, and even a piper to keep time for the rowers. While we don't have definitive evidence for what the remaining nine or ten positions would or could have been, it's pretty logical to assume that a few of these men would have been responsible for working the sails and other components of the ship when needed, and it seems that these remaining men were divided into two groups, one each stationed at the bow and the stern of the ship to oversee the sails in each of those locations. To return back to the positions that we do know for certain, the helmsman is probably the most important of these. By his title alone, we can tell that he was in charge of the ship's navigation, and any order necessary to get the ship where it needed to go. This included overseeing the bosun and giving orders to be passed to the oarsmen below. The helmsman, and the triarch as well, seem to have operated out of a deck near the ship's stern, where the helmsman could have access to the steering oars, but also be elevated enough to execute his navigation duties properly. From this stern deck, the helmsman could also issue his orders to the bosun, who presumably stayed below deck and made his rounds among the oarsmen, although the space below deck was definitely at a premium, and he would have had to learn to work around the hypozomata, as we said it was strung along the keel line at about water level. There is a wonderfully evocative passage from Xenophon that sums up the boson's job and the importance of good leadership, so I'll just go ahead and quote this passage and move on. He wrote, quote, on a trireme, when the ship is at sea and the oarsmen have to make a day's voyage under oar, some bosuns can say and do the sort of thing that stimulates the men to work with a good heart, but some are so tactless that it takes them twice the time to complete the same voyage. In the first case, the bosun and oarsmen come ashore sweating and congratulating each other. In the other, they come in cold, hating their rowing master and hated by him. The piper also played a role in the operation of the rowers. He used his pipe to set a rhythm by which the rowers could keep time. The piper would receive orders from the helmsman through the bosun, and he would presumably alter his rhythm according to the needs of the situation. He likely occupied a point near the central mast so that all the rowers could hear the rhythm clearly, although based on a modern reconstruction of a trireme, there were some seeds of doubt sown about whether a single piper would have been loud enough so that all the rowers could hear him. This does leave the door open to competing theories about how the rowers would have kept time and been able to hear the orders on an ancient ship especially in the middle of a loud battle clash. Anyhow, Orpheus, with his lyre aboard the Argo, 
is a perfect picture of where the Piper would have played and how he functioned in the ship's system as we understand it based on the literary evidence. Aside from the Piper, there was also a position for someone akin to a money manager called the Pentacontarcos, who seems to have been in charge of purchasing food and provisions and managing the finances required to keep things operating smoothly. These were the specialized positions aboard a typical Greek trireme, and I hope that these brief descriptions have helped round out the picture of what all would have been going on aboard our trireme as it shoved off from shore and set course for, well, wherever it was headed. Perhaps only a few more items in relation to the rowers are necessary before we move on to our next topics today. I alluded to this fact in my intro today, but the most important thing to note in relation to the men who made up every rowing crew on a Greek trireme is that they were not slaves. As the decree inscription says, the rowing crews of the Athenian triremes during the Greco-Persian Wars were made up of both Athenian citizens and foreigners, most likely foreign-born residents of Athens, and citizens of other Greek city-states who had joined the Athenian navy. Thus, no slaves were chained to rowing benches, as is a common misconception today. Indeed, as we will flesh out in the coming episodes, the proximity of poor Greeks to wealthy citizens and middle-class men, all rowing side by side in the holds of these triremes, all classes of Greek citizen forced to work together in defending their homeland, this is a critical component of the mixture that made up the foundations of democracy in ancient Greece. Before things get too heady, though, one more note about the rowers. While many Greek citizens took part in pulling an oar on board a trireme, it was by no means easy or immediately intuitive. The rowing crews underwent an intensive period of practice before they were ready to enter into battle. At least the Greek rowing crews did. Thucydides quotes Pericles as saying, quote, The fact is that sea power is a matter of skill. Like everything else, it is a full-time occupation, leaving no moment for other things. Athenians in particular were renowned for their ability with an oar, but it appears from various sources that this was a skill that every Athenian man learned as a lad and continued to keep polished throughout his life, remaining ready to pick up the oar once again should circumstances require. As for the mechanics and unique aspects of rowing a trireme, not much has survived from antiquity, save the inscriptions that are intensively studied. The practical way in which rowers operated, the technical aspects of the space that they would have needed, and how they rowed in sync in the tight confines of the space below deck, these things have all been understood much better through recent work on trireme reconstructions done at full scale. Volunteer crews have boarded and rowed the ships, in as accurate a form to the originals as we can deduce based on the evidence out there. 
and the reconstruction efforts conducted so far have proven amazingly successful. More on that toward the end today, though. As for the rowers themselves, because about two-thirds of the total were in the bottom two tiers, two-thirds of the rowers in a trireme were rowing blind, essentially. And this especially applies to the Thalamian rowers on the bottom whose oar ports were blocked completely because of the leather waterproofing sleeves. To get a bit technical, the layout of the rowers in their offset tiers would result in all rowers being able to put their oars in the water simultaneously from the different angles of their tier. They rowed on beat in a synchronized fashion, so according to the calculations of the men who designed a reconstructed trireme, each rower's oar, when in the water, would have only 30 centimeters of room on either side. That's a little bit less than one foot. I imagine uh, a couple of people sitting in a canoe, with one person in front and one person behind, possibly, if it's a big canoe. If we imagine this to start off with, we can see that rowing a canoe is probably the easiest thing there is to row. The paddles are short. They're a couple of feet long at most, and there's still a lot of space between the various rowers. The trireme oarsmen, in comparison, were rowing blind. Their oars were connected to the thole pin. The oars themselves were 4.2 meters long, or almost 14 feet, which must have made them quite heavy in addition. And when they were in the water, there was little room for deviation from the rhythm, with just those 30 centimeters of clearance. When we envision this situation like this, then it's very easy to see why the rowers had a quite tough job that required constant practice and training. On top of everything else here, we haven't even begun to think about how backbreaking the job was and how swelteringly hot it could get, encased in the ship's hold with 170 other men. To be frank, I get winded just thinking about all of this and how much work it would have been. I can't imagine having actually sat on one of those thwarts and pulled an oar for hours at a time. At this point, uh, I think we have as good a place as any to talk a bit about the reconstructed trireme that I kind of just alluded to, and then we'll wrap up today with a look at some naval tactics of the trireme and a few closing points to tie it all together. The reconstructed trireme is still around, actually. There's only the one main one, and it's called Olympias. It's currently housed at the Naval Tradition Park in southern Athens. So definitely go pay her a visit if you are in the area, and give her a hearty greeting for me too, if you don't mind. Anyway... This ship, Olympias, was the culmination of years of research and collaboration between several scholars, foremost among whom were the naval architect John F. Coates and the historian J.S. Morrison. A large portion of our material today is coming from a book that was written by Morrison and Coates, a book called The Athenian Trireme, which gathers their research into the history of the trireme, all the literary and iconographic evidence that we have for it, and then reports on the mechanics and design that went into conceiving and building 
the Reconstruction Olympias. It's really a marvelous book, although it does get technical in stretches, but I would still recommend it highly if you want to delve deeper into the topic than we have in this long episode here today. The book, of course, gives every detail that you could want about the Reconstruction, but here is my stab at trying to encapsulate the high points. If these descriptions don't help paint a clear picture in your mind, by the way, do visit the website for today's episode, where I've included some videos taken of Olympias as she underwent sea trials. The visuals of seeing a fully manned ore crew are a better primer on the operation of the trireme than perhaps this entire episode, or at least close to it. I guess I shouldn't sell myself too short, right? Anyhow, the operation of the trireme, especially the feasibility of a ship with three levels of oarsmen, has always been a topic of hot debate in naval and maritime history circles. For much of history, it was understood that triremes did indeed exist and function because of their presence in the historical record but historians and engineers struggled quite a bit to replicate the system that they would have used. The aforementioned men began to correspond and work on honing their theories in the early 1980s, starting with scale models and then a full-scale mock-up of one section of a trireme, just wide enough to contain three oars in their three tiers. Students pulled the oars, the ends of which were simply paddling water in a pool, but the invaluable feedback and information gleaned from these early tests helped Coates and Morrison solve the complexities of the trireme. They gradually expanded their mock-ups by adding more and more rows to hone their designs and their theories as to how a trireme would have been built. They finished by building a full-scale reconstruction of a trireme, which they called Olympias, and they did this in partnership with the Hellenic Navy in Greece over a period of two years and two months. While the construction and design were efforts in the realm of what we call experimental archaeology, they strove to construct Olympias in line with the evidence that's connected to ancient triremes as much as was possible. This included elements like the timber used to build the ship, the method of shell-first construction, uh, the size and dimensions, and any other such items that you could probably imagine. The bronze ram that they fashioned is based on depictions from the ancient period in addition to the athlete ram, which was discovered off the coast of Israel in 1980 and dated to the 3rd or 4th century BCE. Now, the biggest departure, perhaps, from a completely identical approach in their reconstruction came in the fact that they had to use a steel cable for the ship's hyposomata, the hull brace, rather than the linen rope that the Greeks would have used. This switch had to be made in the interest of time during the original sea trials of the ship, but they concluded that the replica rope would probably have performed even better than their steel cable did. 
Ultimately, in addition to learning much about how a ship would have functioned, and how the rowers would have learned to time their strokes and hone their skills, the sea trials of Olympias confirmed the fact that ancient triremes could reach a cruising speed of around 7 to 8 knots, with short bursts peaking over 9 knots. The trials effectively confirmed the facts written by the ancient historians like Thucydides in regard to the speed and journeys conducted by ancient crews, and this in turn led most modern historians to conclude that he probably wasn't exaggerating about the capabilities and the accomplishments of ancient triremes. I want to go ahead and read a passage from the Morrison and Coates book here to append a small caveat to our talk about the Olympias, but really to our whole talk to this point in the episode. While we do know a lot about the trireme because of depictions and literary passages, there is still a lot that's been inferred and incorporated into our modern theories about the trireme. The reason for this lack of knowledge regarding the trireme in some areas is that we have never actually found a trireme wreck. In all honesty, we probably never will either, and the reason for that is, as Morrison tells us, quote, the trireme had a positive buoyancy and did not sink when flooded. This is in addition to the reality that since triremes were designed for single days at sea, with the recommended beaching each night, they carried little to no ballast. Despite the total absence of physical remains, there is a ray of light, I suppose, that we should mention. Morrison also notes that, quote, the single piece of hard archaeological evidence for the trireme which we possess consists of the remains of the Zaya ship sheds in Piraeus, which are known to have been built to house the triremes and thus allow us to calculate the maximum dimensions these ships could have had. Those dimensions leave us with a maximum dry length of 37 meters, 127.5 feet, and a clear width between the columns which separated one ship shed from another of 5.94 meters, or 19.5 feet. The ships themselves are likely to have been about as long and a little narrower than these dimensions. To go ahead and put a pin in our discussion of the reconstruction, now that we've looked at a pile of evidence and have a good understanding of the trireme, I figured it would be interesting to share the six considerations that Morrison and Coates kept in mind as they tried to synthesize the known facts into a working trireme reconstruction, while also inferring the information necessary to fill in the gaps in as authentic a way as possible. The six considerations as they listed them were 1. Accommodation of what must go in or on the hull 2. Propulsion, power and speed 3. Weight and waterline 4. Center of gravity and stability 5. Strength and 6. Feasibility of building 
I found these points interesting just for the window that they give us into what naval architects look at as they consider these types of matters. I think this is about all I wanted to say about the construction and operation of the trireme in its component parts. The one thing that I've seen written over and over in just about every book or article that I've read is something along these lines that the trireme's design approached the physical limits of lightness and slenderness combined with maximum length, such that if any changes were made to the design, the ship's integrity would be compromised. To take the long view here, as I try to do whenever I catch myself thinking myopically, we can view the trireme as a culmination of shipbuilding and design innovation in the Mediterranean system, stretching back to the oared galleys built by the Mycenaeans and evolving up through the merchant ships of the Phoenicians into the two-level galleys and the earliest attempts to affix rams where ships had previously only possessed four feet for landing. The trireme was a giant leap forward, and it revolutionized naval tactics, which happens to be the topic that we will conclude with today. Maybe I've repeated this one too many times on the podcast, but in the vein of the discussion about tactics, we've seen repeatedly how naval tactics prior to the advent of the trireme consisted of using galleys as troop transports and as mobile fighting platforms that engaged similar enemy ships at sea. The opposing ships would usually just fire arrows at and board one another to fight out a man-to-man skirmish, with the hopes of taking control of the enemy's ship. Nothing really sophisticated to speak of. The most important advantages of having ships in battle was just the option that they presented to ferry troops around on the sea and to perhaps approach an enemy's land position from sea rather than just also on land. The trireme as we have described it today, especially the Greek approach to the design of their triremes, this was a total departure from the previous approach to conflict at sea. Greek triremes were long and narrow and light, sacrificing an armed contingent for a tiny number of soldiers, but making room for the large number of unarmed oarsmen that would power the ship. The construction of the hull and prow, with its focus on reinforcing the ram and distributing the force that it could absorb upon impact, this was the entire point of the trireme. You could almost say that it was a floating or powered missile, as I think I said earlier, designed to wreak havoc on enemy ships, while remaining quick and agile enough to leave the scene of the crime and strike again as many times as possible. This is, of course, a gross oversimplification of the tactics. If a single trireme were to take on a group of enemy triremes, it would in all likelihood be demolished, and quickly at that. However, when a city or confederation managed to build a fleet of triremes, They gained the option of using a few specific tactics to try and improve their chances in battle. 
These tactics all stem from the reality that the ram on the front of each ship was the offensive weapon, while the flanks and rear of the ships were the vulnerable spots. Speed in maneuvering was key, so the fleets of triremes that started engaging in naval battles quickly adopted the tactics of forming lines. Although do keep in mind that all of these engagements still did also contain the older-style pentaconters and other ships that didn't have rams on the front, which honestly would make them the most vulnerable of all if they weren't agile or quick. The specific situations for these tactics will, of course, surface in our later episodes where we look at a particular battle and how geography influenced the tactics. But in the general sense, there were two main tactics that trireme commanders adopted during the battles related to the Greeks. The first was called the diak plus, which means sailing through and out. As ships prepared for battle, the typical practice was to form a line abreast formation. The ships would line up side by side so that every ship's ram faced the enemy's line, but also so that each ship's flanks were protected by its neighbor, save of course for the ships on each extreme end of the long line. The meaning of the term diak plus comes in when we know that the tactic itself was for the offensive ships to break their line and to form a different line, what we call line-ahead formation. This means that the offensive ships would be moving ahead in a line with a lead ship and then however many ships joined that line, arranged in a single file type stem-to-stern line. The goal would be to find a weak point in the enemy's defensive line-abreast formation, even if that meant that a few ships on the offensive side had to suffer heavy damage in their effort to ram a hole in the enemy's line. So long as the lead ship managed not to hit a ship in the enemy's line head-on, then he could likely ram the enemy's ship along the side, either shearing off its oars, or in the best-case scenario puncturing the enemy's flank at an oblique angle, such that the ram didn't get stuck, but that the offensive ship's forward momentum would basically cut a fatal gash in the side of the enemy ship. Whether the lead offensive ship managed to do this and keep moving, or whether it did get stuck and a few other ships were needed to force a hole through the line, the ships further back in the offensive column would continue through the enemy line and then sharply turn and attack the enemy ships from their vulnerable stern. Here again, the offensive ships would likely pick up speed and attack from an oblique angle so as to cut a gash in the enemy hull, which would also reduce the chances that their ram would get caught or bent. The object was not to ram an enemy at a completely perpendicular angle, as many movie depictions would have you believe. Speaking of, I've been meaning to ask if any of our listeners have chance to watch the more recent movie in the 300 franchise, the one that depicts the battles of Salamis and Artemisium. These battles are key and will be heavy focuses for us soon, but I haven't actually seen this movie and I was curious if any of you thought it was time well spent 
or if I should just forget that it exists. Anyhow, we've now described the Diak plus tactic. Let's go ahead and describe the other main tactic called the para plus. Now, if you had a flash of deja vu in hearing that term, that's because it's the same term that we applied to the ancient sailor manuals, like the one that we looked at previously, the paraplus of the Erythrian Sea. The word paraplus means simply sailing around. So in this tactic, the offensive ship or line sought to outflank the enemy, to sail around them and attack from behind. This stems from the same idea as the Diak Plus, to reach a position from which you could attack the enemy in his weak spot. But it was accomplished by sailing around the end of the enemy's line, in a similar sense in the way that land armies would try to outflank enemy armies. It did also apply to scenarios where two ships squared off in a smaller skirmish, but in any case here, no matter the numbers, the key was speed. The offensive ships had to be fast enough to sail around the enemy and wheel about to carry out the attack while the window of opportunity was still open. The Greeks developed an interesting defensive tactic, which they used in situations where they were outnumbered, such that the enemy could outflank them easily. They would begin in a line abreast formation, but as the enemy passed the line's flank, they would contract into a circle where every ship's stern faced the center while the rams of each ship faced outside the circle. Think of it like a porcupine rolling up into a ball with all of his quills sticking outward, or even simply as a waterborne version of the famous testudo or tortoise formation in the Roman military, where the soldiers would form a shield barrier to all sides of a formation. In the naval version of this, they would retain their shape as the attacking ships began to get impatient and circle around the exterior of the circle if they decided to remain on the offensive anyways. This, of course, opened up their flanks to attack, so the Greek circle would wait for the opportune moment and then explode outward on a given signal and attempt to ram as many enemies as possible with their vulnerable flanks exposed. This tactic proved quite effective in certain situations, and we will of course talk about those in the future as well. These are the major tactics that we should be familiar with, and really, that's about all I wanted to say about the trireme in today's episode. It's definitely been a long one, my voice is starting to go, to be honest with you, and I know that I've left out much that could be said about these fascinating ships. Hopefully what has been said gives us a good handle on how they operated, how they were built, not to mention how crucial they were to Greek survival. That final point, though, is something that will be better grasped as we get into the particular stories and battles to come, though. So today we got to know the weapon that the Greeks elected to use at sea, a weapon that they used with great skill. Now, I do hope that the length to which today's episode has stretched wasn't off-putting for any of you faithful listeners. 
I do suppose, though, that if it was, you probably hit stop a while ago and you probably aren't even hearing this plea for indulgence. If you're still listening, though, thanks. I then also hope that the info today has been enlightening and has done justice to the Greeks who built and manned these iconic ships. As I've repeated a few times throughout today, our upcoming episodes will focus on the specific times, places, and people where these ships begin to take on more of a focus. Namely, to start with, the Ionian Revolt and the Battle of Lade, then on into the first engagements of the Greco-Persian Wars and everything that follows there. In the interest of not taking up any more of your time today, I'll leave it at that concerning the future direction and topics for us. To close out, a brief update about what's all going on in my life, perhaps a bit of a glimpse into the reasons behind the lack of regularity in episode release. Also, I certainly can't neglect to thank our recent additions to the crew, along with everyone who took the time to leave reviews. Our reviews recently have come from the US, Canada, and the UK, so thanks very much to users SF6Dude, Frustrated and Out of Pocket, Sambo the Honest Nigerian, um, interesting witty name there, which I do appreciate, Liz Bray, Steve Donka, Lightfoot's Full, and Downland Strider. The remaining review from Stephen T28 made me laugh quite a bit, but it's one that you kind of have to get the inside joke to appreciate, so I'll leave that one to our listeners to look up if you want to even take the time. Nonetheless, thank you much to everyone for the high marks on the iTunes review system. Those reviews do help us continue to stay on the charts and in front of others who may decide to join our growing fleet here. I would, of course, also be shirking a bit if I didn't thank our newest crew members who have elected to help me keep the candles burning aboard our ship here so that the podcast continues to get out to the universe. Thanks to Al, Sandra, Shedrick, and Charles for joining up. And a standing thanks goes out to everyone on the crew who has continued to support the podcast. Our crew members do gain access to members-only episodes as they become available, and I'm working on our next one even as this one is being recorded and prepared. So please do look into the crew member option if that's of interest to you. I've also obtained some pretty high-quality stickers to help our crew represent the podcast wherever you feel is most appropriate. I'll leave that up to your discretion, though, of course. I'm actually pretty happy with how the stickers turned out this time, though. I received a sample run, and I have a full run of more on order, so I'll be mailing a few out to our supporters as I get them and am able. If you've signed up to support the podcast on Patreon then I may have your address. But for any of you who have ever supported the podcast through Patreon or PayPal donations and are interested in receiving a few stickers, uh, go ahead and shoot me an email or message me with the best mailing address for you, and I'll get them headed your way as supplies allow. I'll of course have to look into shipping costs and feasibility for anyone outside the U.S., but I'd do hate to have to limit it in that way, 
So I will do my best to get the podcast gear going out around the globe. Quickly before I sign off today for good, here's a bit about where I'm at personally. I moved to Minnesota a little over a year ago now in the hopes of finding a good job after law school. That's uh, proven a little more difficult than I had first hoped. So even though right now I'm presently working at a good law firm, the position is on a contract basis. So essentially my job has an unknown expiration date uh, at some point in the future. The bottom line for me is that as it concerns the podcast, my job takes up a lot of time, which leaves me whatever remaining time to both work on the podcast, but I'm also still looking for a more permanent position of employment. I'm obviously trying to find a good balance for everything still, and it's proven a little more of a challenge than I had hoped. That being said, I do attempt to execute comprehensive research before I sit down to write each episode, so that does make my workflow a little bit slower than it might be for some other podcasts. Our episodes are a little bit longer than other podcasts too, so that fits in and contributes there as well. I personally hope that this results in a more informative end product. That's one of my main goals for the podcast, uh, so I guess it is all a trade-off in the end. In other news, I did take a week's vacation in the build-up to this episode, so I beg your understanding there at least too. It was the first real vacation I've had in a couple of years, and it, it, I was able to do some cruising on the Pacific Ocean in the Channel uh, between Santa Barbara and the Channel Islands. That was a much-needed recharge, uh, and especially in that it put me back in touch with the ocean, which I've been away from for a couple of years now, which is a sad state of affairs. Anyhow, that's a personal update. Thank you for indulging me on that point, in addition to all the other points today. The ultimate and visionary goal, perhaps, for me remains that of turning this podcast and other historical pursuits into a career, but only time will tell there. No matter where the winds take me and the podcast here, though, I do humbly thank you for listening and for playing a part in putting the wind in the sails of our ship of podcast the Maritime History Podcast. Until next time, crew, thanks for listening. <laughs>